namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa muttang dhammang sankhang namasami so it's the observance day lunar quarter that's a chance for us to practice through to 12 o'clock tonight and we try to create situations where we do longer periods of formal practice, sitting and walking meditation. So do try to use this evening, uh, if you're here, if you're living here, in that vein, because there's something about these long periods of formal practice which really are very um, illuminating about what your mind is doing, what kind of habits it's continually moving into, what the particular mood is that you are carrying in the day. So do try to like use the afternoons for formal practice, try to get a few hours in. And then these lunar observance days also try to do sitting and walking here outside. So the uh, mindfulness around very ordinary things like sitting and walking becomes strengthened. I was thinking about the difference between a scholar and a, and a contemplative. And not a contemplative can be a scholar too, you can have both. And a contemplative needn't be a scholar. And a scholar isn't necessarily a contemplative. So the, the scholar, it seems to me, has a, a kind of encyclopedic attitude to the teaching. So a good scholar gets many sources, has a, has a wide reading of the texts, knows contexts of how words are used in different suttas in different situations, knows the difference between commentary and Buddha Vajana, and so on and so forth. Has a, has a obviously if it were if it's our canon has a has a working a good working knowledge of Pali. A, a really great scholar would have a good working knowledge of Sanskrit and a really fabulous, fabulous scholar would have a working knowledge of Pali and Chinese and I don't know if there's anyone like that. So that kind of encyclopedic grasp of the texts and the canon would inform this person's use of language and the presentation would be a great gift to us because most of us have, don't have that kind of time actually to be uh, have an encyclopedic attitude or, or understanding of the text but the trouble with the encyclopedic attitude is that it is still knowledge it's still information, so someone can present uh, a word and, and argue why you should use a certain English translation for a certain Pali word and be very erudite in that knowledge and, and, and very forceful even. But it wouldn't necessarily be wisdom. It wouldn't necessarily be wisdom. So one sees like scholars arguing about the word dukkha, suffering, stress, which is the right word. I think the contemplative's attitude is, I get the idea. I kind of know what you're talking about. What's the next step? So the contemplative doesn't need the exact definition. The contemplative needs the basic knowledge for contemplation, and for taking this teaching really deeply. So the encyclopedic mind has breadth, has a lot of 
knowledge about different things, which is just wonderful to read when you read about that. The contemplative mind goes deeply into a few ideas, very, very deeply. So uh, a scholar and a contemplative, they're really quite wonderful to read when you find when you find that. A scholar, I, I remember going to a, a talk in the uh, University of Wellington, and there were two, two very famous scholars who had done a lot of writing in, in Theravada Buddhism, and one was a visitor from the States, and the other was resident in University of Wellington. And the, the scholar gave, the visiting scholar gave a kind of sort of interesting scholarly take on some abstruse aspect of the text. And it was okay. And then the other scholar got into it, they started to get into an argument about language and so on. And you could see that they were, they kind of knew what they were talking about, but the rest of us didn't know what they were talking about. We didn't care. And they got into an argument, and it was a kind of one-upmanship of scholarship, who is the more clever. And I just kind of looked around the audience, and we were just kind of looking up in the air and thinking, oh, come on, what's that about? And that's, that's intelligence when it is a sort of a dominant characteristic, as knowledge, position, viewpoint when it's not imbued with a heart, not imbued with compassion, not imbued with understanding, not imbued with wisdom. A contemplative who has no knowledge, who has no no study, no grasp of the basic teaching, the danger there is there's just a kind of wandering around. You know, I'll, I'll do a little bit of uh, psychotherapy, a bit of Tonglen from Tibetan tradition, you know, put in a spice of Ajahn Chah. I like Rumi. Rumi's really fun. Rondas is good to read. And it becomes kind of smorgasbord of ideas, but there isn't a really consistent core, intellectual core, with which to approach the contemplative project. So both are necessary. Knowledge is necessary, but knowledge without contemplation remains shallow. Contemplation is necessary. Contemplation without knowledge remains scattered, or it doesn't hit the mark. People ask, so how much knowledge? How much should I study? Well, I think that depends a lot on temperament. Temperament sort of dictates how much you like to study. But the one thing to contemplate, what, what, is, what is, rather than take the easiest thing to do, what is difficult to do? So the intellectual, uh, who has a kind of love of encyclopedic knowledge, Gains, uh, accumulates more and more knowledge, studies and accumulates more and more knowledge. Uh, that's easy to do. That's easy to do. But for that person, maybe putting down the books for a while, having no books, having just the mind, having having, having a basis already of, of contemplation, but putting it down and like not reading for a few years, very difficult. On the other hand, the person who uh, doesn't really have a good intellectual framework who doesn't really like like rigorous thinking has a kind of fuzzy head around thinking that person probably doesn't like to read the texts or doesn't like to read at all and for that person it's more difficult to read so you say well why don't you read a bit why don't you study a bit so we tend to take the the thing we like the most and we tend to follow which is natural which is nothing wrong with that but to do something difficult so the intellectual might find yoga really difficult. 
or the yogi might find thinking difficult, not necessarily, not necessarily true. The intellectual might find like not, you know, not really embedded in the body, not aware of the body, just kind of up in the headspace, not aware of body movement, how you use the body and such like. So for the intellectual, you get to get into the body. For the person who's very bodily oriented, um, thinking more. Certainly, I we could see that in in Thailand, the monks say from Bangkok were and who are educated in university that they were thinkers. And the monks who are more from farming communities, they hadn't been trained in that kind of use of, of the critical mind, that they were stupid, they were very smart, but their conditioning was different. So how much study to do and how much contemplation to do? Well, the, the goal of the practice is to be from, free from suffering, right? to liberate the heart from suffering. So if you're suffering, then you've got to do something. Study a bit, contemplate a bit, but you have to liberate the heart. You know, that's, the, that's the point of it. So how do we go deeply into something? Well, we have to pick something up first of all. We have to study it. Having studied it, so say we were chanting this um, beautiful reflections on the Four Noble Truths. And, and to take that and actually, what, what would it mean to go deeply with that? Well, you'd have to pick it up every day. You'd have to write it down or memorize it and actually inform your mind every day, every day, throughout the day, on the principles of what that teaching is saying. And then if you did that, if you inform the mind in that way, you're using intellect, you're using thought, right? But now it's not an accumulation of knowledge, a kind of addition of knowledge, another book, another book, another idea, but actually it's one set of principles which now, hopefully, will come up in your mind, and you will begin to observe life through those perceptions and through those principles. And that's what contemplation is. It's the observation of life through principles, and in Buddhist contemplation, then it's the principles that the Buddha suggests. And those principles aren't abstract philosophy or abstract ideas, intellectual ideas, just for the sake of ideas or for the sake of theory. They're actually pragmatic. They deal with life's predicament, and they're the recommendation we get from our teachers and from the Buddha that if we can penetrate what those mean at, with insight rather than knowledge, we can really see in our own minds, oh yeah, yeah, I see what he's talking about. Right, oh yeah, I see how that works. We get the connection, we understand what suffering is and the letting go of suffering is. And that's contemplation. So then the knowledge is deepened and deepened and deepened with with observation, with reflection, and then the knowledge becomes insight. And then we see, like the Buddha sees, or like our teachers see, we see truth, the way things are, and the way out of suffering. Uh, and that's the contemplative's work. Now again, if you have a, a, a great scholar who's also contemplative, their reflections are, are very, you know, very lovely. I mean, one, is, one is grateful for that. So if you, if you just take something like, like um, the, the basic teaching that we just reflected on, basically you have craving. Suffering is, is caused by the attachment to craving. The end of suffering is the abandonment of craving. And then the path is constantly doing things which assist you in the abandonment of craving. So there's suffering, crave, attachment to craving, abandonment of craving in the path. So that's 
you know, we hear that all the time. But actually, to take that, say, second noble truth, when you're feeling, when you're feeling in disarray for some reason, and you're feeling fractious with someone, or, or you're just not happy, or you know, some kind of discontent, or whatever, to actually remember that teaching in the midst of your discontent is the contemplative's work. And how do you remember that teaching? Well, you've looked at it every morning. Every morning, every morning. So then, then the tendency to look at this life situation of discontent from the perspective of the Four Noble Truths, the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, it's, it's more likely to occur. If I have no, if I don't have a constant contemplative theme or themes, then I just tend to take life personally. There are these events and I just try to get by them and it's your fault or it's my fault or I'll distract and, and life just sort of tumbles one event after another. But there isn't the kind of precision of, hey, well, wait a minute, I have discontent. What's the cause? Well, the cause is attachment to craving. So what's the craving? That, that constant looking at life through a lens, you know, through, through a perspective, through a viewpoint. Not attachment to viewpoint, it's not like I'm holding to the view that, like, like intellectually. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm putting on a pair of glasses, or I'm, 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 I'm getting a, a perspective on how to look at life. I can look at life in many ways. So I can feel, I can feel, uh, say, the heat, the heat in the room. I mean, we've gone from, when we came ago, so we've gone from snow to 30 degrees in three weeks. Welcome to Canada, Canadian, and, and even the. But where the grackles were, had their beaks open. Poor things, they're all black. It must be very hot in there. So they're sweating with their open beaks, 30 degrees. Yeah? So the heat, the heat is like this. So if I, if I have, uh, if I am, maybe if I have a Sri Lankan body, oh, lovely. This is really nice. Or I think Renwakema likes the heat, and I think others don't like the heat. Yeah? So if I don't like the heat and it's hot and I'm feeling sticky and so on, I can, I can look at that, oh, it's too hot, it's global warming, I don't know, the world is coming to an end. I can look at it that way. I can look at it and say, oh, yeah, oh, I think I'll go back to my kuti, I'll get air conditioned. I can look at that way. And I can also say, oh, with heat as a condition, I feel discontent. Let's say, if that's true, it might not be, but let's say for, for me, I feel, I feel sluggish or I feel, oh, this is discontent. And what's the cause? And discontent creates craving. And then the craving creates thought. And the thought is uh, complaining and whining. And what's, why am I suffering here? Oh, attachment to craving. I don't want the heat. This is a, this is a frivolous example. Life is much more complicated than that, but one needs examples. So I, I look, oh, oh, okay, yeah. What is, what is the craving here? What is it, what, the room is this way, the heat is this way. And what is it that I want? that I don't have, or what is it that they have that I don't want? What is it? And I notice, oh, there's a difference between the heat in the room and what my mind's doing with the heat in the room. What my mind's doing the heat, it's complaining and making a problem, and that's attachment to craving. <clears throat> ah, okay. So what's the end of suffering is the abandonment of craving. So I have to let go of wanting the world to be different, or I leave. I'm going to leave, okay, go into the other room or whatever, but... No, I'm, I'm stuck here now. It's an evening meditation. I have no choice. So, okay, what's my choice? Well, okay, I'm going to want, what, what would abandonment and craving mean? So, that's contemplation. It's not just thinking. I have to explain it in thought. It's the only way 
one can explain. But it's actually observing, isn't it? And, and getting to the point of non-suffering. It's just heat. Heat feels this way. And then the mind's silent. And then the mind's, oh, but it's too hot. Oh, yeah, okay. And, but just heat, it's this way. So that's a trivial example. Take something, again, like, like you know, someone is just getting up your nose. You know, getting on your nerves, and, and so on. And you can't really do much about it. It's just the way it is. And then the mind uh, goes to that. Why, why don't they stop that? Why don't they stop that? No, no, no. What's the problem? What's the problem? It's him. Or it's her. That's the problem. No, 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 no. Social situations this way. I can't change it much right now. What's the problem? It's craving. So you're always going back. You're always going back to a, a kind of model, kind of like a stencil, right? You're putting that on, onto the situation or a model and seeing it's the same problem, it's craving, it's attachment to craving, it's the same problem again. Uh, and what do I want? Well, I want this person to be different, because I'm right. Of course I'm right. Or I want this person not to be here, or I, don't want, or I want to be somewhere else, or whatever. What's the craving? That's the, that's the so storyline, yeah. It shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be that way, I shouldn't be this way, you shouldn't be that way. Yeah, 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 but what's the craving? Oh, not wanting, not wanting this situation. And I begin to see it. I see the social situation, I see the speech, and so on. I say, oh, there's this resistance. There's this struggle in me about this situation. But it is as it is. I can't do much about it. If I do, I, yeah, I do. Sometimes we can do, sometimes we can't. But let's say I can't. What's the problem? I say, oh, it's attachment. It's attachment to craving. And I watch, and I watch, and I watch. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And I begin to see that, 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 that clutching or that tension or whatever it is. And I begin to, to relax away from it. Still the same situation. Socially, if I can address it and make it better, fine. That's fine too. But much of life you can't. Some of life you can. So little by little and throughout the day, each time these kinds of sufferings arise, dukkha arises, I begin to see, oh yeah, there's, I, want, I want things other than they are. But it's this way. It's this way now. And that's we emphasize this kind of really simple phrase. Life is this way. And listen to it and be silent. No, I can't be silent because I want to be different. And, and, and this is the contemplative life. It's not. It sounds like self-analysis because one has to use thought, but it's not. It's an observation of cause and effect. It's a noticing of cause and effect. And what is the cause of non-suffering? And what is the cause of suffering? And it's, it's felt in the body. It's it's realized in in the emotions in the heart and it's it's your whole being is involved in this. In a dhamma talk, only the intellect is engaged in this because one has to use intellect because language is that way. But your whole being is engaged in that. So you might be feeling really um, fraught about someone in the family having sickness, and uh, you know you do the best you can and you go to the doctors and you do and you're still worried and fraught and so on and. And then at some point you have to contemplate that as as stream of consciousness. What is the suffering now? I don't want my child to be unhappy, or I don't want cancer, whatever it is. Oh, not wanting. Well, obviously I don't want cancer, and I want to live just really, really healthy and really, really healthy until I'm how old? Sometimes it's going to come. Sometimes. So what is it? What, what's, what's the problem? Where's the craving? Where's the abandonment craving? So if one constantly does this, that's contemplation. And you don't need a lot of teaching for that. You need some. You need accuracy. You have to know what the, what the project is, and you need the, the proper tools. But 
it doesn't take an encyclopedic mind to do that, but it takes a rigorous type of attention to constantly remember that, and it takes a determination to constantly take that self-responsibility for one's suffering and the end of suffering. And to do it again and again and again and again is, is a lifetime project, not just something that you do periodically. It's a lifetime project. So some of the, like some of the teachings, they're intellectually they're not very challenging. Not very challenging at all. Four Noble Truths, it's not that. You can, you can expand it and make it really difficult and complicated, so it is challenging, but that's usually papancha. But actually, attachment to craving is not, it's not like you have to figure out what a neutrino is or something like that. It's not like that. It's, it's much more human, much more human. But take something like the Metta Sutta that we chant a lot, just as the mother loves her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Okay, that's intellectually very easy. Very easy. But actually apply that for the rest of your life. It's very hard to cherish all living beings. So let's say you, you, you talk with someone yesterday and you lost it. <laughs> and, and you get an argument or, or they, they said something to you which was very, very hurtful. And then you see them today. And then to cherish all living beings is very hard because you're actually relating to this person from yesterday's memory. And yesterday's memory says, I don't want to be with this person. I don't know. And you're already speaking from a memory, from some self and other, and the mind is already wrapped up in, in suffering. But to actually rigorously take something very simple like that, to cherish all living beings all the time, it's impossible. But you give it a go. You give it a go. And it's unilateral. Like, I'll cherish you if you cherish me is not the deal. Right? I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. That's not the teaching. It's not saying, I will cherish all living beings who give me nice meals and tea and say I'm a great guy. It's not in the sutta. I would cherish all living beings as a mother cherishes her only child. So you get this very high teaching, right? Very high, very high. And, and what to do with that? Well, you can be idealistic and think, I can't do that, or... I'm terrible, I can't do that, or I didn't do that. But that's, that's idealism, that's not, that's not contemplation. Contemplation is taking a teaching and mirroring your own uh, mindsets and your own speech and your own action through that teaching. So the teaching says, to cherish all living beings. To remember that teaching, I have to look at it every day. Intellectually, I can read it in one sitting, I know that, and I can move on to my encyclopedic accumulation of knowledge. It's easy, but it's very difficult to do. So that, that's a very, very good example of how intellectually things can be not so complicated, and we think we can know, but actually to live that teaching day in, day out, takes the rigor of, first of all, memory. One has to take a sutta like that, chant it over, memorize it, and then bring up those lines to cherish all living beings all the time, even if you don't like them. You know, and even if even if they you know they get up your nose or whatever, but to cherish the living, that doesn't mean you like them. It means you don't you don't wish them harm, goodwill. You start to contemplate what to cherish means when you're speaking with someone, when you're thinking about someone. Uh, to cherish someone, what does that mean? So the contemplative mind gets constantly stimulated to look at life through this particular avenue, 
Why, why is that important? Well, it's important because we are heart beings and we live in a relationship. And if we don't address the heart, if we just you know, run over people to get what we want, or we live in fear and run away from people, then we're stuck. We're stuck. But if we cherish all living beings, we begin to see how in relationship there can be peace. And that there can be peace, at least at one side. You know, maybe other people don't cherish me. That's their problem. It doesn't happen so much anymore, but when, in the early days when, we, when I was in England or Canada or New Zealand, we get a lot of cat calls. Get a job! That was when I got in New Zealand a lot. <laughs> or skinhead. Or, hey, Harry, Harry Krishna. Or, yep, bum. You know, we just get these cat calls all the time. And I think, that's not nice. I'm a monk. <laughs> I'm doing a good thing. So to cherish that, to cherish that person means what? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean I like it. And it doesn't mean I'd, I'd kind of hug him either, because he probably punched me in the head. That's not being foolish, but it's just seeing, you know, because when I first would get cat calls in, in where was it, Toronto or something, people were quite rude in Toronto because Hare Krishna had had an episode of murder in, in Toronto. My father was downtown near the Eaton Center, and he, a woman came up to him with a daffodil, shoved a daffodil into his hand, she's, and he had to kind of take and she said, give me 10 bucks. She was Hare Krishna. So he had a bad view of her, and, she, and he took out his wallet, and she grabbed 20 bucks. So he had a very bad view of her. So this kind of perceptions, and then we're Hare Krishna, so we walk on the street. And then, you know, when I get insulted, my first impulse was, I hope you get a flat tire. <laughs> or, may you have an accident. <laughs> but that's not cherishing all living beings. But the teaching says, Virdhammo, you know, you're a Buddhist monk. You may think that, but don't pursue that. Don't live that. And so I'd say, I could feel the aversion arise and say, yeah. To cherish all living beings, I'd say, yeah. May they be free from suffering. And even, even if I didn't really mean it, at least I was inclining towards cherishing all living beings. So when you, when you see a teaching like that, when you read a teaching like that, then everyone, everyone is important. And when everyone is important, then you're not so important, which is all right. You're important too. You're important as everyone else, but then the teaching isn't so self-consuming. Sometimes we see that. Sometimes like we'll, we'll cherish someone and will be disdainful of someone else. That's always interesting. I always see that interesting in a monastery where one person gets cherished, usually the abbot, and then the same person then disdains another person. I say, wait, 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 what's that? What's that about? If you're gonna, I think if you're going to be in a bad mood, be in a bad mood with everyone. That's okay. At least it's honest. But then, oh, this, this person I, I respect and I revere, but this person I dismiss and I don't look at them. No, what's that about? That's ego, isn't it? That's ego. And it's, it's done in the world. It's done in the world a lot, but that's not cherishing all living beings. So then you're challenged. Then you have to do something you don't like to do. It's like the intellectual maybe having to do yoga or the, the physical person having to read a bit and doing something you don't like to do, cherishing someone you don't like. Now, how do you cherish someone you don't like? You think thoughts of goodwill. May they be free from suffering. You don't have to like them. You can still feel... Well, I don't really click with this person, that's fine. But imagine that if I, if I live a life of duality, I you know, respect this person, I disdain that person, that's ego. 
itself, self and other. You're cherishing all, other, all living beings. You're constantly letting go of that differentiation of self, of ego. And it's very freeing. It's, it's the method of the heart uh, that liberates the heart. Now that doesn't happen by just reading the sutta once. It happens through sustained practice, year in and year out, year in and year out, year in and year out, because aversion and fear and jealousy and greed, and these are very alienating energies. They're very powerful, very powerful in the human mind. So to apply a, a rigorous uh, attention through a text uh, is, is becomes really deeply meaningful about the text and about your own mind. And then, that, and then that becomes the way you liberate the heart. So contemplate that. What, what, is the, what is the use of knowledge? How much knowledge does one need? And am I taking knowledge like really, really deeply in, into a way that really liberates the heart? Or am I just accumulating knowledge? Vice versa, do I really have uh, a good grounding in the Four Noble Truths? Do I really understand that structure so that it comes up almost automatically into my mind when I'm suffering? Do I have... Am I deeply embedded in that? Do I really know that? So memorize that, write it down, know it, read it, again and again and again. That's why we're reminded of the same things again and again, because we forget. We simply forget. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection tonight. Sadhu, 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 sadhu,